with Roe v. Wade in the news and Joe Biden considering taking a national emergency break on uh, politics and just our general culture, it might be a good time to be armed with some good answers for the life question. Let's talk about that today with our special guest. What you believe about God dictates how you will think. Our philosophies dictate how our culture behaves. Politics is simply the enforcement of cultural norms. The truth claims about God, philosophy, culture, and policies will affect what we value. When these things are in alignment, revival is possible. Well, hello there, and welcome to Further Every Day, the podcast where we explore current events through the lens of the Christian worldview. To my left, around the room, we've got Jennifer sitting in the chair of theology. How are you this morning? I'm very good. How are you? Doing well. Glad to have you in there, dealing with why we believe what we believe. And moving over to her left, we got Josh. How's it going? Doing well. Glad to have you in the chair again, dealing with the intellectual rigor the Christian must bring to the faith. Yes, sir. Loving God with our mind, too. And to his left, we've got Melissa for the second time on this podcast. How are you doing? Doing good. It's been a while. Glad to have you on. Sitting in the chair of culture. Don't be afraid to lean in on that mic. And then to her left, we've got Dr. Linda Flower, our special guest of the day. How are you? Just fine. Happy to be here. Glad to have you here. So Dr. Flower has been a uh, family doctor for about 20 years uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, has done a whole bunch of work with um, uh, women's right to know. Is that, is that, am I getting that right? So 20 years of OBGYN, but I've been a doctor for 40 some years. 40 something years. Okay. Very good. And, and she has been part of a healthcare ministry. If you want to talk about how welfare should go, uh, Tamagua Healthcare Ministries, that is the way that help healthcare should be done. Uh, they, take money from people who want to help and they allow people to pay what they're able to for their health care. Just an absolute saint. And we're glad to have her on today. She's testified in Texas uh, State Senate, Congress, et cetera, uh, on on this issue. And it's an honor to have her on. And to her left, we got Mr. Steve. How are you doing? Hey, John Arthur. I am doing fantastic today, man. And uh, they got me on a different mic yes sir no 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 you're you're fine just talk normally just talk normally (laughs) dealing in the chair of politics because government is um, a god-ordained institution why wouldn't we want it run the christian way and of course yours truly sitting in the chair of economics what you value will come from everything that has been covered above so let's go ahead and just dig into it there are some very very commonly asked questions uh, about abortion. And we have Dr. Flower on today. We'd like to go ahead and get uh, her take on some of this. But let's start with the theological questions because they can get kind of interesting. And I think Jennifer has too. Go ahead and start with the first one. Yeah. So, you know, when we're researching this topic to find these questions, when you Google, you know, what does the Bible say about abortion? You'll get article after article after article that all say the same thing. Jesus never talked about abortion. It's not in the Bible. So why are we so focused on this issue um, when this claim has been thrown out that it's just not brought up? So, Dr. Flower, thoughts? So <clears throat> it's like a lot of other things in the Bible. It's uh, There are principles in the Bible that help us. So um, 
for instance, we don't even have to go all the way to Jesus. We can go to Psalms. And in Psalm 139, it says um, in verse 13, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So I, have, so I want, just want to mention that um, back when I was delivering babies, um, I had a patient come in who was not exactly happy about being pregnant. And um, she was married, um, already had a child, um, but she was in school. So she was like, I, don't, I just can't have a child at this time. So I knew her, so I knew her background, and I knew she was Christian. So I just opened the Bible to Psalm 139, gave it to her, and, and then left the room, let her read it herself. And that's all I did. And, of course, I prayed to myself. But, um, and when I came back in the room, she was not abortion-minded any longer. She just looked at the truth, saw that the child that was within her had value and that God had been instrumental in the creation of that child, and she shouldn't be thinking about getting rid of that child. So it's a, <clears throat> you don't have to have a specific, you know, the, the Bible doesn't say do not drink. It says do not get drunk, you know. So there's there are specific things that we follow sometimes that are not that specific in the Bible. So, um, yeah, so it, when a topic is not specifically addressed, it's mostly the principle that's there. Yeah, and, and we have that for a lot of principles. I mean, that the word Trinity is never used in the Bible, but the principle of it is taught. Right. And uh, that's something that we do very commonly. And and Psalm 139 is not alone. I mean, we've got Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart. And it just over, I think Isaiah, Isaiah has a, a similar passage. Um, so the Bible does talk quite a bit about the value of, of human life. I think we should also remember that um, Jesus was actually, that Mary was an unwed mother mm -hmm. at the time of conception. So um, that's an incredible example of the value of life that um, God would consider the womb a place to arrive on earth. Well, and thank God Mary wasn't abortion-minded. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to rattle off a couple more verses, and then we'll get to our, our second question. But um, just, just again, the Bible has a lot to say on this topic, actually. So I will first go to Deuteronomy 18 in verse 10. There shall be found none among you uh, that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire or that uses divination or is an observer of times. So when Israel entered the promised land, what the other cultures were doing was sacrificing their children. God clearly says that's not OK. Again, in Deuteronomy 30, uh, verse uh, 20 that thou may love the Lord thy God, and thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou may cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days. Oops, sorry, it's actually verse 19. Um, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. So that's a pretty clear teaching against this shedding of innocent blood, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. The cultures that um, 
that God um, judged, like you said, are the ones that were uh, sacrificing their children to other gods. And so um, really abortion is not really any different. It's more like sacrificing to the God of self. Yeah. So now that we've sort of laid this foundation of what does the Bible think about children, um, what would you say to the argument that, you know, someone someone who is in this situation, sort of like the story that you've already uh, told, that this baby is going to be a burden on the mother. It's going to be a burden both financially, emotionally, uh, in so many ways. How, how can we approach women who are feeling that sort of way? So um, the, the wonderful thing that people, a lot of people don't realize is that we have thousands, like four to one, crisis pregnancy centers compared to abortion abortuaries in the United States. And these um, pregnancy centers not only um, take care of the, of the mom before the baby's born, but also provide care after. They also provide, they provide parenting classes. They provide support for the father um, and they help women who are just in in difficult situations. They also give them the option of, okay, you can, you know, you have the option to keep your baby. These are choices. Keep your baby, put the baby up for adoption. Um, so there are ways to, to offer that to uh, moms in, in compassionately, in compassionate ways that don't just drive her to have to um, get rid of the child. And mo and these women, I don't think, are really happy about doing that. It's funny because they seem to know there's something wrong. You know, so first of all, there's something wrong with, the, with them getting pregnant, but there's also something wrong with them um, trying to get rid of the, of the baby. So, and it's not something that most of them do um, willingly or easily or just flippantly. Um, even even uh, some, a lot of people said in the political realm years ago, let's make abortion uh, rare, uh, safe and rare. So uh, I find it interesting that they said that because when I went before the legislature trying to pass laws that would make abortion clinics have to follow the same rules that any other outpatient surgery. They that was it was ultimately shot down by uh, the Fifth Circuit. So um, we can't even, even though it's the most common procedure performed on women, we can't even make it safe. And people think it's safe, but it can't even hold it to the same standard that we've already applied to right. every other, like you said, outpatient procedure. Right. And uh, let me just say. When you use that kind of logic to start imposing on a moral question, when, when, when you're using convenience to answer a moral question, could that spread beyond abortion unintentionally and start affecting maybe um, other areas of, of morality? <laughs> Absolutely. So since we have, when, since we started asking that question and, and providing abortions in the United States, the question of euthanasia at the end of life has also taken hold. And um, I don't recall how many states it's legal now, 
but I believe it's about 13 states where euthanasia is currently legal. So the the beginning of life and the end of life touch each other in that way. Could you elaborate on why euthanasia is so dangerous of a slippery slope? So, well, so that's one of the things that we saw, uh, if you think about it, in uh, Nazi Germany, when they thought about um, it's this philosophy of the quality of life. And so if you decide that someone is not going to have a good quality of life, it's better to get rid of them. And so they started getting rid of all the disabled veterans and then people who had uh, any kind of, were crippled in any way, uh, people with epilepsy, um, people with mental retardation. They started getting rid of these people because they were, first of all, that they didn't have, quote, unquote, good quality of life. Hmm, who's to decide that? Yeah. And then the other thing was the burden on society. So this is this comes back again to the abortion question because, okay, that means, you know, well, this child is going to be a burden. You know, if we uh, always thought about that, there wouldn't be a lot of children. Um, you know, if you wait to have a child uh, to when you can afford a child, there wouldn't be very many. So um, that's not a logical question really in what we see in reality. Amen. So moving over to the chair of philosophy, that's a great segue. Moving over to the chair of philosophy. I'm sure you've got some questions. Yes, I do. Thank you, Dr. Philatus, for joining us today. We're going to be asking some questions pertaining to the why. So my first question is this. There are circumstances that produce pregnancies that are rough, such as incest or rape. In cases of incest or rape, there will be some people who make the claim that this gives them the right to abort a baby, even if it is a human being. What would you say to those people who make these claims? Well, there's a couple of answers. Um, one is that if you talk to women who have been raped or are pregnant as a result of incest, which would also be rape, um, the, when the, if they have an abortion, they will say that the experience of having the abortion is like going through that horrible experience once again, or even worse. The other thing is that um, the, ch the child did not commit the crime. So why are we punishing the child for the crime of the father? Um, I think that we have it backwards. Yes, it, I think what you hit on there at the very end is, is so important. Are we going to punish the child for the actions of the father? Where is this logic ever accepted? It, you surely wouldn't say that if the father makes a mistake in the real, let's say the child's alive, the child has been birthed. The child's alive in the womb, but the child is birthed. It's, it's now walking in the world. And then father makes a mistake. Do we then make that mistake punishable to the child? Surely not. And we call this in philosophy a red herring when a subject is unrelated to the other subject. Mm -hmm. And a question we could ask these people, because of these instances of rape and incest occur in 2% of abortions, and that's a generous number. And go ahead and throw that slide up, Mrs. Producer, while probably, he's talking. Yeah, probably less. It's, pro it's probably less. And so I'm being generous there. 1.5. 1.5. A, a great question to ask these people well let me obfuscate and let me give you those two percent are you okay with getting rid of the other 98 percent then is that what you're suggesting 
And if the person says no, then what's the purpose of bringing up the 2% if the 98% are not okay to you to begin with? It's a fair point. True. So this goes into my second question. Another philosophical question related to this issue of pro-life. There will be people who, or actually, before I even get into the question, there's a lot of people who are pro-life that also support the death penalty when it should be exercised. They're, the opponents of the opponents who are for abortion will then come to us and say, "Well, how can you be pro-death penalty, but be pro-life? How is that possible?" So, Doctor Flowers, how would you respond to this objection? Well, this comes back to that same argument about the the crime. The child didn't commit a crime. When you're pro-death penalty, you're talking about someone who has committed a a heinous crime, um, you know, murder or uh, kidnapping, something that's just terrible. And most people would um, would agree that some kind of punishment needs to be um, given. So, um, the, again, the child has not committed this crime. Um, if you want to think about some people who have uh, survived been products of uh, of rape. Think of uh, Ethel Waters. I don't know if you guys know her, but she was a famous uh, um, black gospel singer. And then um, the other day I was watching uh, a podcast uh, where a gentleman got up to speak who himself was the product of rape. So just because the mother's in a bad situation doesn't mean that we can't assist her and we can't comfort her and, and guide her and help her um, make the right decision about um, bringing up this child, whether she would, and in this case, they had put uh, him up for adoption. and But he was grateful for life. How important is that? Th those stories are so gripping and so important and integral to the case for why abortion is wrong and why we are pro-life. And to kind of give an averse that goes to this idea of, well, this person who committed, who's getting the death penalty, they're guilty of something. They're usually guilty of murder. So when you look in the Bible, you go to Genesis 9, it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. That's so interesting in the context of Genesis 9, because Genesis 9 is after the flood has happened, and he's making this covenant with Noah, and he saw what the previous world was like where all sorts of debauchery and murder and rape was acceptable in the in the eyes of man. And so God essentially coming to him now and saying, we're going to start new. Murder, off the table. But if you do commit murder, you will be held liable for that. Amen. And that's a really good point. Any following points before we wrap over to the chair of culture? You know, going to the societal standard as well. It's, it's interesting. It, it's meant to reduce crime. Yes. It's, it's not meant to produce more crime. It's meant to reduce crime. How many murders should an unrepentant murderer be allowed to commit? How many children should a pedophile be allowed to harm? How many born alive babies should a Kermit Gosnell be allowed to murder? We can't have these people on the streets. These people are committing atrocities and they need to be held liable. Amen and amen. That is a 
excellent pointing out of the red herring. If you can move your mic over to Melissa and the chair of culture, that way she and Dr. Flower can go and go back and forth. Let's move over to the chair of culture. Melissa, I know you've got questions. And I do have a question that actually um, relates to what Jen was talking about, that um, about the dangers of having an abortion. I was just curious, actually, if whenever a woman does come to the clinic, are they fully you know, made aware of all the dangers and the procedures that goes along with it, and then, like, what happens after the fact? So in Texas, um, back in 2003, we passed the Women's Right to Know Act. Um, I was on the uh, Governor Perry's committee that wrote this booklet, and so that women would be told not only what was happening inside them. So there are pictures in the booklet, and it's on the website as well. It's just women, women's right to know um, that um, show the developing fetus, uh, and then uh, and as the so from the embryo stage all the way up to full term. It also describes doesn't show pictures, but it describes the um, the abortion procedures. Typically, what and so the the law is that this booklet has to be given to the woman. And also in Texas, before that, we had passed a law to have a, uh, a 24-hour waiting period. So um, it's given to the woman, and then she theoretically would read it and then would, you know, decide for, you know, finally, if she wanted to come back for the procedure. Interestingly enough, what the, what the, um, what I'm told is that the abortion clinics would hand them the booklet and just say, um, this isn't true, and just hand it to them, and then that would be it. So they didn't talk to them about the increased risk of, um, of miscarriage. They didn't uh, talk to them about the increased risk of breast cancer. Um, most of the, the side effects, or even what was going to happen to them emotionally, um, didn't really give them that support. And so when they, if they had the procedure, they also didn't uh, provide after care support either. I took care of a number of women who had had abortions and then had complications. They, they couldn't even tell me where they'd had their abortion done or wouldn't. Um, so, uh, and there was no, there still is not a law that says that, that, that the complication of that abortion has to be reported. I was gonna ask that, what, what the era margin Mm -hmm. Right. So not only do we not know for sure the, the total number of abortions because those statistics are not really kept, um, especially now with um, the, the uh, chemical abortions, um, those statistics are not kept, at least in Texas. They are kept in some places. And, and the other thing is, is that we don't know how many complications unless they're just really serious. So we talked about um, with Josh, the father, and we all know it takes it takes two to conceive. Um, a lot of fathers they want to be the dad. They want to you know take in that role. They don't mind being the single father, but they're denied that right. How do you how do you address that? How does the government and how do we how we change that? Boy, that's a good question. That's a $64,000 question. I mean, in Texas, if the mother um, identifies the father, then um, then he has to pay 
um, support, child support. So that's the other thing that the moms going in for these abortions don't really know. They aren't informed about that, about that situation. Um, the, um, I forgot the other thing that I was going to say. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I have a story. Um, so my daughter was in college, and uh, there was a young man who sat next to her in one of her lectures. And um, apparently he had gotten his girlfriend pregnant. And um, he was working through that only to one day discover that she had had an abortion. So his response to that, he was mortified, and his response to that was to commit suicide. So dads do care. I don't know what to say after that. That's uh, Yeah, and it's not a statistic that anybody keeps. We don't know. For a reason. They don't keep them for a reason. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. So also from the chair of culture. Might want to ask the question about uh, foster, foster kids. So, oh, so right now we have about what four hundred thousand dollar. I'm sorry, four hundred thousand kids that are considered unwanted through the foster care system. So, a lot of people say that. Well, isn't it better to have kids that are wanted? How would you uh, respond? So, um, if you would have, um, if you had a group of women in a room who had children, and you asked them how many. Uh, how many of them uh, wanted every one of their pregnancies? Probably less than half would raise their hands because a lot of times, even when, when a person is married and doing well, you know, that wasn't the time that they planned to have a child. So um, the, the, the fact that there's that many children in foster care is, is sad, but it's partly because some of the adoption laws are so, so hard and it's very expensive to adopt a child. Um, so I, I have uh, a couple of families in my church that have adopted sibling groups. So that's, some, that's a place where the church could be more active in helping these children um, get adopted. And actually, we have a slide on that. Go ahead and throw that up, Mr. Producer. There's approximately, it's hard to know the numbers, but if you're, if you're watching on uh, YouTube, we are on YouTube, uh, there are approximately one to two million parents who want children who cannot get it through the adoption system. When I heard that, it's easier to do a foster to adopt as opposed to just going through a straight adoption process. Mm -hmm. It's it's probably easier. To, it's hard to adopt or to find a newborn to adopt. So when the when the child is fostered, it's it's usually a little bit better, a little easier. Yeah, my uh, my. My mom and my family, we um, do a lot of work with um, some foster agencies in Texas. And the the 400,000 unwanted children, that's not babies. Babies right. are adopted. I mean, they are snatched up right away. The 400,000 comes from children who are removed from uh, homes that are not suitable for them. And that is very hard to get adoptions. You know, once they hit four or five and up through, you know, 16, 17, 18, it's very hard to find homes for them. And that is a problem, but that's not a problem that's associated with abortion. Babies will be adopted immediately. So it's a good so point. My family, in my family, we've got, I don't know, somewhere close to half a dozen or a dozen foster kids, you know, in my extended family that have been run through. And, I, and I'll just speak to this. They're not infants. 
And the adoption process is so hard. Uh, one of my cousins, she, both of them wanted to adopt very badly. They were in the process of getting the adoption papers. And then gangbanger dad and drug addict mom wanted them back. And they went back. And these two kids were screaming, mom and daddy, I, I want to be with you. my family. My family, I want to be with you. So if you want to talk about reforming the foster care system, we are 110% on board. 110%. So any further thoughts from the chair of culture, Dr. Flower, on these? Okay. That's great. Let's move on over to the chair of politics. Mr. Steve, I know you have questions. Yes, I do. You know, um, as far as, and let's say like constitutional wise, we're, <clears throat> we have it to where it states, you know, we have the, the right for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Dr. Mm. Flowers. And doesn't, now our nation is set up and built on individual freedom, stating, you know, like I said, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And doesn't that interfere at different times with a woman's freedom or say like even, let's say, the fetus's freedom? Even when, let's say, an individual's freedom, say like this, uh, the fetus itself is produced, we know that that fetus is life. Yes. And the Bible states like Jennifer had pointed out that God knows us in the, womb. in the womb. Doesn't that also mean at times, and if you could expound on that as far as pursuing life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness, it, doesn't that in any way, does it interfere Conflict. with a woman's freedom? Um, or no, or yes, in any way, you know I what think, I'm saying? I think if, he's getting to the autonomy. To get, yeah, I, I think he's getting to the autonomy argument. I think he's getting to the autonomy argument. In a way that it, yeah. it so, I, I mean, or <laughs> I'm, I, I don't guess I'm getting a, getting it across right. We got you. We got you. We got you. The issue of autonomy. I, I guess I'm, we got right. you. It's okay. It's okay. So, Dr. Flower, on the issue of autonomy, on the issue of autonomy. Yes. Correct. So um, as far as um, politics and culture, et cetera, has gone on the issue of autonomy, um, we are responsible for our spiritual um, uh, life and what we do with that. Um, but God also created us in the first place for relationship. So the, the autonomy issue has... Um, taken on a life of its own, even in medicine, which is what the a lot of the pro-abortion or pro-choice folks are arguing. You know, it's my body, my life. Um, but it isn't. They have another life inside them. So um, it doesn't really, if you, if you think deeply about it, it doesn't really hold. The, but it is one of the issues that we're dealing with because we're very... Um, in fact, um, I had somebody arguing with me about that. You know, we're just so, we want to be so independent. We want to, um, we want to do, we want to make our life what we want it to be. 
But in if we really think about it, we know that that we can't do it all, and that we need other people. We depend on others. So to say that um, that it's totally just that autonomy, it doesn't really fit. We're we're doing apples and oranges again. So, just a quick question on common argument that's presented is the violinist argument. And you're familiar with this, I'm sure. But the idea, that, and we've talked about this on this podcast before, but the idea that you're kidnapped one night, next morning you wake up, you're on life support to the finest violinist in the world. Do you, and your body's the only body that can provide that um, life support. On the issue of autonomy, they'll bring that up. What What's wrong with that analogy? How does that fall apart because of course you have the right to cut life support from someone if they're going to stick you in bed for nine months you have the right to cut that you may not you, you may want to be kind and merciful but it's not your obligation but how is that violinist argument different than a woman who's carrying a child um <laughs> it's not <laughs> <laughs> well it is a little bit no, because you've got a you've got a baby that you're actively murdering versus someone that you're cutting from life support. That's it. So it's so, a false equivalence. So, um, but you're you are cutting the baby from life support, but this baby has potential, yes. and we don't know what that potential is. Um, so, um, I don't know if you. There's several instances. You're not going to take that, the person who's on life support, and tear them limb from limb. That's it. That isn't what you're doing. Um, it there's that's a quite a different situation from um, taking a living being who is just fine, who is their only crime is being tiny, and being six inches or so inside a woman's body. So to, to make that um, analogy the same is a, an, another red herring. Absolutely. Got another right. question. Uh, yeah, and do you, do you think that the, the GOP has done a poor job in, like, framing this argument as far as dealing with a, a woman's freedom in regards to this, uh, as far as, say, like, if so, what would be the best framing of this political argument for them? So again, um, I don't know if it's the, the framing is bad or if it's just the follow through. But, um, you know, the notion that life is sacred and that life is a value is something that we need to um, continue to um, promote. Um, so in, in a way I don't, I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm very active in that whole political, um, side and, um, we did have to argue to get the, the pro-life position into the, um, Republican party at one point. And we did it by reminding everyone that they were once a fetus. So we've all been there and we need to think of it that way. I just wanted to say really quickly on the violinist argument, even if you find that persuasive, that only applies to cases of rape because you have forced someone to attach them to the violinist. So then we go back to Josh's question. 
can we outlaw the other 98%? So Indeed. I find the violinist right. argument to be a little overblown, personally. Indeed. That's a poor argument. Mm -hmm. So, with that said, coming over to the chair of economics, there is always an economic argument for abortion, and they're making it stronger and stronger, or at least they're trying to. And so, let's talk about this. Good question. One that's been asked is, we're putting 14-year-olds under the duress of having a child because they made a mistake, quote-unquote. That's the framing of the argument. Um, we wouldn't even allow these girls to adopt. Why would we force them to have a child? There's two or three logical inconsistencies there, and I'm, I'm sure some of them jump out at you. But you're someone who's talked to a lot of abortion-minded women, as you've alluded to earlier. How would you respond to this argument? Well, first of all, um, though that is it is a difficult situation when um, a young person, a very young girl, is pregnant. It's interesting that we always put the onus on the girl and nothing on the father. Um, and I don't know that anyone is forcing her to have a child except for the person who impregnated her. Um, so uh, the and I and, but I do agree that we need to support this this young person and um, and find as much help for her as uh, as we can. Um, I I saw a story the other day of a of a woman who a grown woman who finally thought back, realizing that her mother was probably thirteen or fourteen when she had her. And she hadn't really thought about it before. And so um, I guess she found her birth certificate or something and looked at it and just realized, oh, so, she, and she, it was, it had never been made a big deal of. She was raised by her mom and, and grandmother. Um, so the, the argument that the child should be killed because of the difficult situation is um, is one that's that's again that's a convenience argument, um, and it's not um, it's not necessarily it isn't consistent with the pro life argument for the fact that this is a baby. Um, it's tough. It it's really tough. So it doesn't make it easier, but it but we can provide the support if we will. We can provide the support for this family that's that's needed. So. Before contraception, I'm sorry, I don't have any of the stats this, but for this, but before contraception was widely available, you had in the 30s, 40s, when we were still documenting all of this, we were documenting uh, marriages, there were a whole lot of eight-month babies. There was a reason why there's a whole lot of eight-month babies, because we had something called a shotgun wedding. The man was held to account. You do the crime, you do the time, and it's a life sentence, my man. You have to support these children. But the other thing I want to I want to hit on, and I want to get your opinion on this because you're an incredibly thoughtful individual. The church often shuns these young ladies when they need help the most. If we are to be the hands and feet of Christ. As a church, let's say that you do have a 14-year-old who does not have a good family structure, who does not have the support 
structure. What are we called to do as a church when it comes to people like this? So we're definitely called to come around and, and care for, for this person. Um, we, so the church that I go to has come around and, ta- and uh, supported um, women who have uh, had, um, let's call them surprise pregnancies, um, that were not married. So it's, I think it's not, it's not shunned like it used to be. Unfortunately, that's a good thing. In fact, by the time abortion became legal, um, I think that we were also at a, at a point in our culture where we were not shunning unwed mothers. But yet, women who, are, uh, who become pregnant and are not married do feel that. And it's interesting, and it's not really what society is, is pushing on them right now. I think it's more the responsibility and maybe the economics, but um, with the, like I was talking about earlier, with the um, crisis pregnancy centers, our ability to help care for these families is significantly uh, greater than it ever was before. Very good. Josh, do you have a question? Not so much a question, but a going to your point about the convenience of the economics and how the other side of the aisle or the people who are for the abortion, pro-abortion, pro-choice, if you will, they'll, they'll use this financial liability as a boogeyman to try to scare the, to try to scare the woman out of not having this child. In fact, I was reading an article recently from NBC news and it was detailing this one pregnancy or abortion center in Memphis, Tennessee. And it was detailing all these patients that came in and it would give the testimonial one of the women's testimonial was this. I've had seven children so far. I can't afford to have an eighth child. It'd be too much financial responsibility. There's a lot of problems with this statement, isn't there? (laughs) There's the issue of, well, if you didn't want to have the eighth child, why did you sleep with a man to have the eighth child? There's also the, the going to this point, being held to account for having the child, but you, you don't just get rid of your problem if you have if if you think it's a problem, you you work through it. Personal responsibility. There's personal responsibility there. Amen. Amen. So with freedom comes responsibility, and so we we quote unquote <clears throat> developed an incredible amount of sexual freedom back in the '60s um, with birth control, um, which you know has its own issues. But um, that that argument doesn't doesn't fly with with reality. Just doesn't. It doesn't comport. So another good question that comes up often, and th- this is this is one of the hardest ones to answer, in my opinion. But abortions are cheaper. Some abortions are cheaper than some hospital uh, births. What are, what are we going to do about this high cost on women? And I'd like to preface this with asking, what happens at a hospital if you cannot pay, say you're making less than $30,000 in America today, and you cannot pay a year, and you cannot pay that $20,000 C-section bill? Are there remedies for these women? So good or bad, um, when women... 
um, in the United States, pretty as far as I know, in every state, become pregnant. They're they're eligible for Medicaid, and the Medicaid takes care of the hospital bill, the doctor bill, um, and even takes care of the mom and child for at least thirty days. They're trying to get it extended beyond that, like at least six months. Um, maybe it should be longer. So financially, the burden the the this is one place where maybe when the government stepped up. That was a good thing. Um, the The downside of that is the encouraging um, deadbeat dads. Yes. So that is the downside of that. But the argument that the woman can't, her hospital bill is going to be too high doesn't, is not a good argument anymore. Not only that, but in our, in the United States also, if a woman comes in in labor, um, she has to be taken care of. It's, it's a law. So anybody who presents to a hospital has to be cared for. It doesn't matter whether they can pay. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was just going to bring up. It's it's literally called the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. Any hospital in the entire country, any ER in the entire country, if you come in and labor, you will be given treatment. And if not, it's you you will be given treatment. When I was doing obstetrics, when I was doing obstetrics twenty some odd years ago, I would be on call for women who dropped in. So those are called dropped in. So they're, they come in in labor. They haven't had prenatal care. It always made me angry that they did so well because the ones that I had been caring for didn't do as well. Um, but anyway, they, um, yeah, so hospitals and doctors have, been, have made uh, that um, something that they've taken care of for a long time. So kind of in a twisted sort of way, that whole system, and, and by the way, I, th- I think the model of healthcare should be the church and the body of Christ should be providing this. And I know that you believe this because you, your life's work has been, especially the last, what, how long have you been working at Tamagua? Um, 20 years. 20 years. So the last 20 years you've been working at a clinic that was primarily focused on benevolent donations, providing family care. So that's the way it should be, but the government stepped in. But in a twisted way, this whole thing has been threatened. The Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security system has been threatened by abortion because you have 60, 70 million abortions committed since 1973. And, you know, again, it's kind of hard to figure out that number because, of course, you have a whole bunch of chemical abortions. Uh, The number could be much, much higher. But there are 70 million, 60, 70 million at least, taxpayers who do not exist anymore. We murdered them. And now what do we have with our age population? We have a top-heavy age population of boomers who do not have children paying into that tax system. We're not the only culture um, suffering from that. Um, There's some that are are farther along and that are worse off than we are. Um, The other thing is that it's been so long in the United States that you're also talking about grandchildren that aren't here. So um, uh, I wrote a poem about, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, um, and it, the title of it is Fewer Friends. Um, I, don't, I don't know if we think about that, of all the, the people that we didn't get to know. Um, one of the arguments has also been that we don't know if we would have had the cure for cancer. We don't know if we would have you know, ended a lot of the ills in our culture, in our society, if some of these infants had been born. If you go back to the lineage of Christ, you've got 
um, you have a prostitute, and you have, um, uh, that was Rahab. And then you also have um, Bathsheba. Jacob, well, Bathsheba, and you have um, Jacob's Judah Tamar, and Tamar. Tamar. So, um, you know, there are a lot of instances of, uh, of difficult pregnancies, <laughs> um, you know, even in the Bible, not to mention Mary herself. Um, that, uh, you know, ultimately led to our salvation. So to think that um, we can willy-nilly um, get rid of these children without thinking of the future is, is a shame. So I want to go ahead and back up just a little bit. We're, we're in a post-Roe America at the moment, and there are going to be a lot of conservatives that are, you know, Fist punching the air. Awesome. A lot of Christians excited. But Roe v. Wade was just a state's rights issue. It was a federalist issue where the government is mandating something down. It's bad legislation. But now we're hearing the government talk about, you know, declaring an emergency for quote unquote women's health, which is such a misnomer. But they're continuing on. Is the fight still on one? And two, how do we go about preparing ourselves? What are some good resources? What should we be doing as Christians? How do you become part of creating the Republican Party plank? These are all things that uh, you're very well versed in. Please share. So um, I really got involved in this uh, in this fight back in the 80s um, when we started um, attending some of the uh, conventions of the of the Republican Party. So, in, at least in the Republican Party, after a primary, um, there's a meeting. And um, in the past, it was right after the after the voting of the main voting day, at like seven o'clock. This la- this very last time, it was actually on a different day. Um, but whatever, though, at that at those meetings, that is where the Republican Party platform is is written. You submit uh, resolutions, and the resolutions are voted on. And then those resolutions go from your precinct to your district to the state senatorial district, and then to the... And so there's a big process. That there's hearings, and there's discussions, and there's arguments that are ultimately end up in the state platform. And then that state platform, all the states put their platforms, and those go that goes to the national. And um, because one of the reasons that um, the Republican Party is pro-life is because you know Texas is a bi- big state, has a lot of influence in the Republican Party, and so that's how the um, the party platforms are composed. That so you can get involved on that level as a voter. So. I, I think people missed a lot of people missed what you just said. At the end of voting day, there's a meeting of the local Republican Party underneath precinct chairs, correct? So at the end of the day, at the end of voting, you get a chance if you will show up. There are so many of these meetings that are flat, empty. There's like two people in there. So in our in our uh, precinct, we had we could have sent um, thirty um, delegates 
uh, and alternates to the the state convention, and we were only able to send um, eight. So um, now the limit, there is a limit to the, a, a greater limit to the number that you can send to the state convention, but gee whiz, you know, there's, there's a lack of participation. And if we had more participation, we'd have more representation. And we, that, but it's a secret. Nobody knows about these meetings. I don't know why. They, no, I guess nobody ever asked. So being a part of that, and you can find that on your local Republican Party website, type in, you know, Harris, Hidalgo, wherever you are, type that into your search engine and find your local Republican Party. Find those meetings, call up your local precinct chairs, annoy them to death if they won't help you because some of them are, are weird, but most of them are pretty cool. Uh, most of them are people who actually want to get involved, but um, go ahead and get those people Get those people coming. Where are some good resources that we can go and find information on? Well, I think you hit that mainly is just at the uh, go to the website for the you can go to the state and then your county website and get more information. And then you can find out who your precinct chair is if you don't know from when you went to vote. Very good. Mr. Johnson. Yes, Dr. Flowers. <clears throat> and this kind of relates to. Uh, one of the questions that Melissa had asked uh, on regards to fathers, uh, and I thought the question was pretty interesting on their right uh, politically in terms of with the states doing like some of the red states versus the blue states and allowing like the blue states allowing abortions and red states are kind of putting holds on it and companies paying for, you know, transportation transportation to go to another state. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the fathers wanting to have, like you had talked about, a gentleman that had committed suicide, not being able to have his right to have a child. Do you see um, fathers... Pressing the, the state to press their right for their child? And if so, do you see that there's going to be some kind of political backlash on this in the states that allow it and those that don't allow it? Like a prenatal you know custodian. You know what I'm custody. saying in regards to that? Like the father's wanting to have their right being heard and pushing for like lawsuits. So there's two sides to that. Um, the, I would love for fathers to, to come forward. I would love for, for men to think about what they're doing so that they, if they don't want to be a father, that they would, you know, that they could control themselves and not. Um, the other side of that though, is the problem of, um, which was brought up to me the other day. What so? What do you do when the the father is the rapist, and the father wants uh, parental rights for this child? That's easy. Death penalty for him. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That fixes the problem. It fixes everything. Well, if we yeah, if we would hold, if we would follow that standard, but um, you know, most of the time, uh, the the a rape isn't reported. 
Um, although that that and you could there's a thing called date rape where the the woman is is younger than 17, um, 17 or younger, at least in Texas, it's different in different states where it's considered um, rape if it's below a certain age, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've, we've been, our culture has not supported that notion that the fathers are responsible or that it, they are even raped. The majority are just not reported. And so it makes it tough to, to try to, this is why we're having a lot of this argument is because a lot of it isn't clear and our, our laws are not clear as to how that should be handled. So one could say that you only have rights where you have responsibilities and liabilities. Well, that's, that's true. Yeah. Right. So uh, a prenatal custody, I think is, I think is a way to kind of sum it up legally. Melissa, the, the paralegal is bobbing her head. Uh, going for her for, for, for her PhD at some point in this, uh, prenatal custody can only happen if we have a responsible dealing with rape. It's basically what you're saying. And that should be a policy point, right? Right. Yeah, and you know, one thing that I've noticed in, you know, family court, uh, family court doesn't seem too kind of fathers in regards to parental custody, it seems like, but they're pretty hefty on making sure the fathers have a tendency to pay child support, but not as far as fathers and their parental rights. And it, it, and it shows especially, and this is just commentary here on my behalf part. Um, I've known gentlemen before, and this has been years ago, back when I was younger that, guys that uh, had gotten ladies pregnant, they had abortions without the guy knowing, and they found out, say, like 10 years later or 20 years later, and I find this out at, say, like a you know, high school reunion, and they're, like, just distraught about it because they find out at, at, a, at a class reunion, and it's like they're, like, walking around distraught about it it's like well what's the matter dude and it's like man i just found out this guy you know and 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 is married to somebody else and he's you know he's like already got kids and or a grandchild and is like just freaking out about it it's just horrible we, we, we all have those stories you know my uncle is one of them one of my best friends one of them it, it destroys the man's life when he's not abortion-minded. I want to wrap up today in a nice uh, nice tidy bow. Let's go from the chair of theology. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, as you know, uh, if you watch the intro, you know that we think that everything that happens in our world flows down this. So let's go ahead and start with the chair of theology. Give us your wrap-up and summation, and uh, let's go from there. Uh, from cover, cover to cover. The Bible is clear that <clears throat> it considers um, the child in the womb alive. It is a human. It is made in the image of God. It has immense value, um, doubly so because it is an innocent life, the most innocent of all lives. And I think Josh brought up the passage about the shedding of innocent blood and um, there's just there's just not a whole lot of wiggle room to get around the fact that over and over and over again, 
it is presented as a life with value. So where should we take people, Dr. Flower, when they're Christians? Where should we take them as far as? Right to the Bible, right? Oh, absolutely. So it, so um, I was thinking about the verse that says that the command that we're to take care of widows and orphans. So um, if we were actually following what the Bible said, um, if the church had stepped forward in the beginning, we might not be having this argument. Amen. Moving over to the chair of philosophy, wrapping thoughts. Uh, before I get into my wrapping thoughts, just to give, if you want to know where that verse is, James one twenty seven is what she's referencing there. It's talking about pure religion, and it's 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 so true. But going to this chair of philosophy, we live in an America that doesn't know why they believe what they believe, and instead we are operating on an emotional high, at the compromise of logic and solid philosophy. And so, what has this produced? This has produced a nasty culture that has said the value of a person on death row is more than an innocent baby that is in the womb. It's sick. So when you're thinking about why is this issue of philosophy so important, why do we need to know why what we know? It's because of this. It's because if we don't, we, we'll, we will fall into the same trap that the current America that we live in has fallen into. So any thoughts, doctor? I couldn't agree more, so I don't know if I could add to that. Very well. Moving over to the chair of culture. I guess I think my whole takeaway is information, information, information. It's like we, we're not giving the women the information that they need of what they're going to be experiencing throughout the whole process. We're not giving men the information they need as to what their rights should be if we, you know, if they step forward and actually gave a valid or, you know, an argument to the government of what they want. We're not giving the church the information that they need in order to really help these women that, you know, are in this situation that's kind of my takeaway is that we need to get more involved. We need more of an advocate for these women and men that are put into this situation. Yeah, and the the, um, the culture is such that when a woman becomes pregnant, especially unmarried, um, that immediately the first thought is, oh, I can have an abortion. And that's kind of where we are right now, when we have been for quite a while. So moving over to the chair of politics, give your last thoughts and any last yeah, questions. I think um, here coming up, <clears throat> excuse me, in the fall, there's going to be a, a big wave in terms of red voting, uh, Republican voting. We're going to see where Roe versus Wade, uh, Wade is going to have a tendency to follow through in more states and that uh, abortion is going to get to the point to where it's going to be more minded on people to where I think people are going to have a tendency to move that in a progression to move it out of the mind and think that it's not as good to do as people think. So any thoughts on activism that 
the average Joe can do? Just wrapping up those last couple of points. Well, again, it's important to be active both by volunteering at the crisis pregnancy centers as well as getting active in politics, which, you know, politics just means it's people. So to say that everything is political, really, so that's what it stands for. So by sitting on the sidelines, that's, that's how things get as messed up as they are right now. So the church needs to go forward. Amen and amen. I know Josh has a thought. No, I was just going to say, as someone who would ne- who always hated politics and who was so against it, and I was like, man, I'm not political. I'm never political. And then John Arthur comes to me. He says, hey, do you want to be a clerk at one of these elections? And I say, you know what? Why, why the heck not? What, let's give it a shot. I do it. And man, he's hooked. I'm hooked. <laughs> he's hooked. I'm, I'm hooked. Yeah, so, he's hooked. So, so to the, to the listener, serve in your local election. Even if it is just a clerk role, it's, right. it's all important. Right. So moving on to the final chair, the chair of economics, you may think it is of less value to have a child. You may think it might be cheaper to have an abortion. 10 years outside of, and, and if, if I remember, I'll put this in the description, but 10 years outside of the abortion, not five years, but 10, 20 years you start to see suicidal ideation skyrocket. It's years later, starting to realize what you have missed. It doesn't matter what it costs right now. Church, it, it, it only doesn't matter if it doesn't cost but right now, if the church steps up and becomes part of the solution for these young ladies and young men who have made a mistake and had a happy, wonderful ball of joy show up in their life. But we have to be part of the solution. And that involves crisis pregnancy center. Oh my goodness. If you volunteer for that, it's not a zoo. You don't show up for one visit and then leave. You don't see what's going on and leave. You have to commit. You have to pour into these women's lives. You have to give. If you're, if you can do electrician, electrician work, air conditioning work, these places need stuff like that. If you can volunteer with your local political organization, you need to do anything that you can, even if it's just a little bit of work. If you can just show up on election day and be part of putting godly principles on the plank, your time on this earth is limited and it is the most valuable economic commodity you have. You can donate money to, you know, preborn centers and, and, you know, for ultrasounds, that's good stuff. I'm not saying that's less, but giving of your time to real humans, that is the most valuable thing you can give. Any thoughts on how valuable, it, what does it do for someone who's abortion-minded when you have volunteers in a clinic who actually take the time to listen and to care? Yeah, I think that's uh, super important. What I've heard from uh, moms that have gone into these centers is just they feel loved. They Somebody really cares about them. Whereas when they go in for abortion, you know, it's how are you going to pay for this or um, how far along are you? It's all technical. But, but listening to their story and giving them some ideas of how that this can be taken care of with with compassion um, and with love, 
And in many cases, uh, these these um, preborn sinners also uh, talk to them about the Lord if they're, but they don't force it. You know, they just make it available. And the the women ask, "Well, why are you doing this? Why do you care about me? Um, why do you love this baby? You know, the baby's not even here yet. So how do you? Why are you doing this?" And so that's the opportunity to introduce them to the love of Christ. And it's the most important, one of the most important things that we can do other than the the political side. We mentioned um, adoption as another or fostering as other ways that we could assist in this whole um, problem. But um, getting rid of the problem, um, (laughs) you don't kill poor people because they're poor. So this, you know, this is the thing that's always brought up is that, you know, well, this this family is a very poor family, and they can't afford this child. Um, so, I mean, did you afford that cup of coffee that you um, got on the way here, or the pack of cigarettes, or you know, did you go out and and get your um, your meal out at the restaurant? So, the, to argue that uh, these chi- these children are um, are disposable is is just um, a poor argument. But we believe that they're loved and that they have the image of God and that they're of immense importance. Amen and amen. And if I can just leave you with Psalms 139, I know we referenced it before, but let's exit on this. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. These children are fearfully and wonderfully made. We need to be a part of the solution as the church. We cannot stand idly by. This is the crisis of our time. Roe v. Wade is maybe next, but guess what? It's now on a state's level issue. And if you live in Texas or if you live in California, it doesn't matter. The fight is on. We need to push stronger. We've had a blessing from God. Let's take it. If you enjoyed this podcast, Go ahead and like, comment, share, subscribe. We are on YouTube, folks. We are on YouTube. Join us over here, too, sometimes, if you like, for a watch. Uh, Again, if you're on YouTube, sharing is the new caring. That is what the algorithm favors. So go ahead and share it. And uh, tell us if we missed any good uh, arguments down there. Tell us if you want us to have Dr. Flower on again. We would love to have her on again if she'd, uh, she'd have us as well. And if you didn't like this episode, go ahead and leave a nasty comment down there in the comment section. It helps us anyway. And uh, smash that dislike button, as always, twice. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye, everyone. All right. All right. If you're still here, if you're still here, we put you to sleep. It's on autoplay or you actually enjoyed the conversation. So going around the room, as we always do, let's go ahead and wrap up. What do you think you can do this year, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm putting on everyone in here. What, do, what are you going to do this year to help 
someone who is abortion-minded? Starting with Jennifer. You're making me go first over here. I'm making you go first. <laughs> um, well, so um, with um, Pastor Powers Church, uh, they uh, we've recently started um, volunteering at not a crisis pregnancy center, but at a resale shop that provides funding for it. Um, so I'd really like to continue on with that this year. It's been Very a lot good. of fun so far. Man, I didn't even know that existed. I'm finna. That's how I'm finna get involved. <laughs> yeah, I like that idea. Absolutely. I do like the idea of getting involved with on the political side. Um, so that's kind of where I want to do, especially since it's you know midterms and the you know an election year. So I want to get involved on that portion of it. Join Charlie, Josh, and I. Yeah, absolutely. And you're already involved. Yes. So I'm already um, a clerk in the elections and have been since uh, 1983, and I'll continue to do that. And um, one of the uh, several of the pro-life agencies in Austin do call upon me to testify when needed. I'm part of a men's ministry here at the church and help deal with the men that are in, have, uh, have had either um, an abortion woman that has, you know, had an abortion, deal with their grief or those that are going to be going through it um, and help deal with them in terms of that on the Amen. men's side. That's a, that's a really tough one to crack. Yeah, I, I, I am involved in politics. I will be definitely trying to hit up as many um, opportunities as well to get involved with. There's a couple of crisis pregnancy centers and some outreaches that we're all looking at. Definitely going to try to get into that. We need to be active. We have, this is our chance, guys. This is our chance. And when it comes to eternity's doors, God's going to ask you, I gave you a chance. What did you do with it? Let's have an answer for our Lord and Savior. You were bought with a price. Love you. Thank you so much. Goodbye for real this time. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.